It is my great honor and pleasure to be with all of you this evening. Is everyone able to hear? Thank you. My special gratitude to Srinivas Dempo, Mrs. Nilatai Dempo, Narayan Pandekar, Kedar Dhume, and D.K. Srivatsava. And to each and every one of you, in a place like Goa, there are so many alternatives of how to spend our time. When I first came to Goa in 1971, I was trying to get a visa extension. And in the Himalayas, no one really knew how to do that. So I was told, go to Goa, that is the best place. So I met somebody at Ganeshpuri Prajeshwari, and they said, you must go to Goa. And they gave me a little ticket on a boat, a ferry that was crowded with hundreds and hundreds of people. And we came to Goa. And I came to this city and gave my passport. And they told me it takes 10 days, come back. So I didn't have any money and I didn't know anyone. And I was thinking, where am I going to go? So I came to one beach, Kalangut Beach. And there were all these Western people there and they were playing rock and roll music and they were doing all sorts of entertainment and having romances and I was a sadhu so I was thinking I can't be here so I just started walking and walking for miles and miles and there was a small mountain and I was thinking if I could get to the other side of this mountain maybe something's there so it was a struggle to climb over that mountain. And when I reached the other side, there was the most beautiful beach. Sand that seemed to go so far inland. Beautiful coconut trees. I didn't see a single house or building. And best of all, there was not a single human being. So I made that my residence for 10 days. I slept in the sand and looked up in the stars every night as I rested, hearing the ocean. It was so nice. <laughs> looking up at stars and the moon. 
And I would rise early morning before the sun would rise. I would bathe in the sea. And then I would meditate and I would pray. And around the middle of the day, I would climb a coconut tree and take a coconut and beat it against a rock until it opened and then eat coconuts. And I was so happy. Very simple, beautiful life. And I felt so, in such a natural environment, I felt so close to myself and so close to God. The name of that beach was Anjuna. And I was told, I haven't been back there in 45 years, but I believe it's not so quiet anymore like that. (laughs) In 10 days, I didn't see a single human being, except early in the morning, I would see some fishermen from a distance on little boats going out into the sea. But much has changed in Goa since that time. In fact, this world we live in is constantly changing. Dukalayam Ashashvatam. Everything under the influence of time is changing. When I was a young boy, I wanted to be a baseball player when I grew up. I really changed since then. (laughs) Baseball is a sport. It's kind of an offshoot of cricket. When I was a little boy growing a little older, my parents wanted me to take over their business with my brothers. And I was thinking, very nice. But I always had this calling for something else. And as I grew into my teenage years, I saw so much hatred, prejudice, racial discrimination. I saw so much hate, even the name of a loving God. And with many of my comrades in that generation, we formed a counterculture where we were questioning everything. Because we were told that if you fit into a certain particular mold or a certain way of life, you will be happy and successful. But we didn't see people who had money, who had fame, who had power, that they were at all happy. And what was their success in life? So much greed, so much hypocrisy. 
And then I saw the same things in the counterculture. What we were revolting against, we were the same with a different dress and with different words. And I came to a conclusion that unless I find myself, I can't really be a positive change in the world. And I became more and more serious about spiritual life. In this book, The Journey Home, it tells of how with a friend of mine, we went for a two month summer vacation to Europe, sponsored by someone else. But our sponsor was robbed the first day and went back to America. So we had nothing but we had really enthusiastic hearts to find a meaningful, purposeful life. And as the days and the weeks and the months passed, I became more and more obsessed on a spiritual journey. I had a calling to come to India after hitchhiking, just standing on the road begging people for a ride, I traveled from London to Greece, through Belgium and Holland and France and Switzerland and Italy. And then I hitchhiked through Turkey, Iran, Afghanistan, and something happened in Afghanistan that had a serious impact on my life. The people there were so economically poor. I was one day sitting in a little tea stall. It was just a little wooden shack that only fit about six or seven people. There were no tables, no chairs. Everyone was just squatting on a dirt floor, drinking tea. And someone invited me in. So I squatted in along with them and, and I was drinking tea. Suddenly, a boy, perhaps about 16 years old, came in. He was emaciated thin. His clothes were torn rags. But what affected me most was his eyes. He was blind. His eyes were grossly swollen, discolored. I had never seen anything like that. There was nothing covering them. He had a stick with a little can at the end and a wire that was nailed from one side to another. And he used it as a musical instrument 
he began to play. It wasn't like a sitar or a guitar. It went bong, 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 bong. And as he went bong, he sang. He sang about God, his love for God, his gratitude for God. It was in a different language, but I could hear the name of God in every line. As he was singing, although there was just a little lantern lighting up that old tea stall, he lit up the whole room. His face was full of light. He was smiling with spontaneous, pure joy. As he was singing for about a half hour, all the six or seven of us sitting on, squatting on the floor were totally mesmerized. Why? Because his happiness was contagious. And I remember looking at him thinking I was born and raised to think if you are wealthy, if you have a high education, if you have good health, you will be happy. He was in poverty. He was illiterate. He was blind and diseased. But he was the happiest person I ever saw in my life. My intellect short-circuited. It was such a culture shock. Everything I learned that I was questioning was exposed at that moment. And it truly deepened my conviction that unless we can find our fulfillment our happiness in life within our own hearts, we cannot really find it anywhere. What is happiness? The journey home, we are all traversing. We're all searching for that home where there's real peace, where there's real love. Unfortunately, there are so many distractions all around us. But I knew I had to find it. I traveled through Pakistan, and after six months of travel, most of it I was alone. I crossed the border of Pakistan into a no-man's land between India. And I walked for about an hour and a half, and I came to the Indian immigration. 
It was just some tables in a forest with barbed wire and fences everywhere and military with machine guns. It was actually quite scary. And when I arrived at the immigration desk, there was no lines. There was nobody else there who walked across the no man's land to get to this place. I showed my passport. I showed my visa. And the person looked at it. And as she was looking at it, I was so excited. When you really have to struggle to find something, you really can appreciate its value. The tendency is when things come easily, we take it for granted. If you just eat a big feast and someone gives you a samosa, you say, no, 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 I don't want. But if you're starving and someone gives you a samosa, oh, please, please, thank you, thank you. So I was really starving. In my six months of traveling, I had so many diseases. I was sleeping in, under trees and in so many different places. There were so many life-threatening situations. It was a struggle. And now here I was at the border. The yogis and the sadhus and the swamis and the Himalayas and the Ganga, everything I'd been dreaming about, I'm there. I'm just two steps away from Mother India. The immigration lady looked at me very seriously. And she asked me a question, the one question that I was praying she would not ask. How much money do you have? Show me. When I was running for my life in various places, I lost everything I had. I had no sleeping bag. I just had one little bag. I only had one set of clothes that I was wearing. And I looked through my bag and I had 26 cents, which is maybe a couple rupees. <laughs> In those days, it was not even one rupee. And it was in about five currencies. She said, you must have minimum $200 to enter India. 
We have enough beggars here. We do not want another one. Show me money or you are rejected. I begged her. I pleaded with her. And the more humble I begged, the more angry she became. She said, get out from here. Go back to where you came from. You are rejected. She said, I vow I will not let you in India without seeing $200. In 1970, there were no cellular phones to call someone. And there were no phone booths in the no man's land. And I couldn't go back into Pakistan because I only had a visa to get in once. And there was nothing in that no man's land except a few trees and some snakes. I sat under a neem tree and prayed, God, whatever your name is, whoever you are, wherever you are, please help me. I'm desperate. And I got the courage to go back to the desk and I pleaded and even I became firm and she had the security forces put their guns in my face as she screamed at me, get out from here, you will not come in India. I sat under that tree for about six hours until just around sunset when a jeep came and another guard came, a very tall elderly Sikh gentleman and I saw her point to me, and I knew what she was saying, do not let him in. And then she drove off in the Jeep. So I approached him, and I gave him my passport, <laughs> and he wouldn't even touch it. He said, my commanding officer has given me a strict order that I must not allow you in. Go back. I cried. It wasn't false tears. It was for real. I said, sir, I've risked my life. I've practically starved. I've practically died of diseases. Traveling six months from London to come to your country to learn about your great spiritual heritage, to meet your great spiritual people. I've forsaken all the riches and all the opportunities of the West for my love for India. Please give me a chance. I promise you, someday I will do something good for your people. He stared in my eyes. Investigating the sincerity of my heart. And then he spoke. 
He said, someday a man, sometimes a man must follow his heart. My commanding officer ordered me not to let you in. But I am going to give you the chance that you are crying for. He stamped my passport. He was in his 50s. I was a teenager. He put his hand on my head. And he said, I bless you, my child, that you may find what you are seeking. Welcome to India. I crossed the border. It was a temporary border in Ferozpur between Pakistan and Punjab state. And after the border, there were just fields, agricultural fields. And it was dark. And I didn't know anything or anyone. The first Indian I ever met in my life was that immigration agent. I was walking through fields. I didn't know if I should turn right or left. I didn't know where to go. I was just looking at the stars and looking at the leaves and the trees. It was the first time in my entire life that I felt that I was at home. Even though I didn't know where I was going and I didn't know anyone and I had nothing. Not to speak of a reservation in a hotel in Goa. I had nothing. But I never felt so much shelter. I was just overjoyed. Every tree was like a brother and a sister. And I just walked and I celebrated. And eventually I went to the Himalayas on the banks of the Ganges. I traveled through the jungles in various caves I would live, sometimes on river banks. I met many sadhus and holy people of various paths of yoga, of various religions also trying to learn. One sadhu, his name was Kailash Baba. He looked like he was in his 60s. He was a completely reclusive person who for 50 years lived in the Himalayan jungles alone. But every now and then we would meet other sadhus and they would tell me that he's over a hundred years old. And they told me he had supernatural powers. But he was just so kind like a father. He taught me how to live 
in the jungle, what to eat, how to keep healthy, what to do when you get sick. He also taught me one of the hardest things, how to get along with other sadhus. And he told me that your neighbors here are the snakes, the cobras, the vipers, the scorpions, the leopards, the panthers, the wild boar, the elephants, the monkeys, the mosquitoes. He said, you are now a guest in their neighborhood. He said, if you have any arrogance that you as a human being are better than them, or if you have the slightest fear of them, they will kill you. Because we would just sleep under a tree in the jungle. We were completely vulnerable. He said, but if you honor and respect them, if you understand that on the spiritual level, as a atma, as a soul, they are a part of God just like you, and you offer them that respect, they will never harm you. And because he was actually like that, just being with him, I actually felt not only fearless, but we would see so many poison snakes come by us. We would see leopards sometimes. I didn't feel fear. I actually felt love for them because I was with him. And that was beautiful. The interesting thing is he did not speak English and I did not speak Hindi. But he taught me more than any professor or teacher I ever had in my life because he really cared about me. Just through his pointing his finger, the moving of his eyebrows, or the vibrations in another language, I could understand so clearly what he was teaching me. It really changed my life. And I learned something from him. That to really be a good teacher, one has to truly, genuinely care for their student. And then the message reaches the heart beyond language. And I learned to see that these bodies we have, which are always changing, these bodies we have 
are the cause of so much greed and conflict and envy. just temporary vehicles for the soul. When we understand the Atma, we can see the true equality of all living beings because life is sacred. Why is life sacred? I later learned this from my beloved Guru Maharaj. Srila Prabhupada, in a very deep way. At one time in my journey, I was on a third-class Indian train. They were for free in those days because they were so crowded with people that no ticket collector could get in. And there was a monsoon flood in an agricultural field and the train couldn't move for about 24 hours. And I, hadn't, I couldn't sit down, I couldn't lay down, I was just crushed by people. I hadn't had any water or food. And finally the train stopped and I jumped out the window somehow or other to get some water and to breathe some fresh air and the train left without me. And I didn't know where I was. I was on my way to Kashmir to go to Amarnath for a pilgrimage of Lord Shiva. And I asked some sadhu sitting on the railway platform, where am I? He said, this is Mathura. And it is the birthplace of Krishna. And today is Janmashtami, the birthday of Krishna. Just before getting on the train, I was in Varanasi at the Kashi Vishwanath temple praying, please show me my path. And I felt, I felt something very divine in the presence of Kashi Vishwanath, that yes, he will show me my path. And I was thinking, when I get to Amarnath, it will be revealed to me. I went with this sadhu to the Janmastan and I just felt something so special. I went to Brindavan and slept under a tree on the bank of the river Yamuna. And after three days, I was going to continue to Amarnath. But on the third day, just as I was about to leave, I had typhoid fever. I couldn't move. I was the sickest I had ever been in my life. And by the time I got better, a few weeks later, I had decided I never am going to leave Vrindavan. This is my home within my home. I have found my path. seeing the beauty of the followers of the path of bhakti 
and hearing the philosophical depth of the acharyas of the bhakti school completely satisfied my intellect philosophically, logically. And the experience of being with such humble, loving, deeply spiritual people who simply loved God. And the concept of Krishna, the all-attractive, the supreme lover and the supreme beloved. And the concept of Sri Radha, the ultimate reservoir, the the motherly aspect of the one God who's the mother of all living beings and the source of all forgiveness, of all compassion. It conquered my heart. For almost a year, I slept under different trees on the banks of the river Yamuna and in the forests of Vrindavan. And I just felt everything I ever wanted in my life was here. I would rise about four in the morning, bathe in the Yamuna, and sit on the banks and chant this Hare Krishna mantra. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. For hours and hours and hours. And then I would meet different Brijabhasis and sadhus and go to different holy places. When you're a sadhu, you quickly learn all the places you can get free food also. As soon as a sadhu comes to a place, the other sadhus almost give you a list of where you can go to get free rotis. So I lived like that. One day, there was a sadhu named Sripad Baba who knew everything about every place of Brajbhumi, Vrindavan. He said, I want to take you to one of the most special temples in all of Brajbhumi. Come with me. I came. And he took me down this little alleyway. It was very thin. And it was a dead end. And on the side of this little alleyway, this little path, footpath, there was a sewage gutter. And the sewage gutter was quite wide. And the sewage was really bubbling and blackish. And it smelled very um, different. And I was thinking, where is he taking me? And he, there was a little rock that was a bridge over the sewage gutter. We went into a house and there were children playing and a lady cooking some rotis on one of those little clay stoves that are on the floor. And then 
I saw an ordinary closet, and in the closet were beautiful deities, Radharani and Krishna, and a little thin man, very small, very old. He was fanning Krishna (laughs) with a little fan. And he put down the fan and came to welcome us. And when he heard that I had come from America, he started to cry. He said, he introduced me to the deities. He said, this is Radha Gopijana Pallava. And I am the humble servant of the servant of their servants, Ganesham Das. And with tears in his eyes, he said, Gopi Janabalava has personally brought you all the way across oceans, across continents to Vrindavan because you are their friend and they love you. And he was crying. And I was crying too. I was thinking, I just want to be with this man. (laughs) So every day for a few hours, I would come to sit with him and do seva with him. And every day he gave me a leaf plate with three rotis. And he was so eager and so happy to watch me eat those rotis. It was two or three. One day, when I was bathing in the Jamuna in the early morning, a sadhu came by. This sadhu would come by every day and bless me. But on this particular day, the sadhu scolded me. He screamed. He said, you are so selfish. How could you be so selfish? And I I said, I know I'm selfish, but you know, tell me what I'm supposed to do. He said, Ganesham is starving because of you. Somebody brings him just two or three rotis every day. He offers them on the altar, and that's his only food because he never leaves his closet. He can't leave. There's no one else to take care of his Takuji, his Krishna. And you are eating all of his food. He's dying because of you. I said, honest, I didn't know. So later that day, I went to Ganesham. And he came with the leaf plate with the rotis. And I said, no, no, I'm not hungry today. He said, no, no, you must eat. He said, you are Gopi Janabalava's friend. You must eat his rotis. But I refused, and he was determined. And finally, I said, Ganesham, you are starving because of me. 
I can go out so many places and get rotis, but you don't go anywhere. And Ganesham said, no, no, I'm eating so many rotis. I said, show me your rotis. He said, there is no shortage of rotis. I said, where are they? He said, they are in that little cupboard. So I went to the cupboard and there was absolutely nothing in the cupboard. <laughs> and I said, Ganesham, you eat these rotis, please. And Ganesham cried. He said, is it because of my sins that you will not accept my rotis? My whole life, I have nothing except service to my Lord. And there's nothing more pleasing than my, to my Lord than serving other people. Especially serving his friends. If you don't take my rotis, I have no, I have nothing to live for. The only thing I have is my seva. Please let me live. Eat these rotis. I ate all the rotis, but I made a plan. The next day I was going to come two hours later, knowing for sure he would have eaten. And when I walked through that little door in the house and I approached the closet, Ganesham jumped up and smiled and almost danced. He was in his 70s or 80s at the time. And he said, you have come. Gopijana Balaba was waiting for you. He won't eat without his friend. And the rotis were still on the altar. That was Ganesham. His humility was coming from a place in his heart that was so real. It transformed my heart. That humility, that desire to serve, was what I made my goal in life to achieve. Because I saw the fulfillment, the love and the happiness that he had was like no other. And sometime later, Srila Prabhupada came to Vrindavan. It was the first time in history that a group of Western people came to Vrindavan. There was about 40 people. And the Brijavasis were shocked. They never saw anything like this. People from Africa and America and Europe and Australia. And they were all dressed as devotees <laughs> with saris and dhotis and tilaks. And from my riverbank home, I would go to spend the whole day with Srila Prabhupada hearing his speeches, his classes. He was showing us holy places. And through his compassion, I felt that I had found my guru alas, at last. 
I was told the story of Srila Prabhupada. In the context of tonight's subject, crossing borders, nineteen sixty six was when Srila Prabhupada established the International Society for Krishna Consciousness. This is the fiftieth anniversary this year of that event that is so dear to our hearts. On August the 13th, a Friday, Srila Prabhupada boarded an old beaten cargo ship called the Jaladuta. For many years, he was living in Vrindavan, at the very place of the Rasa Lila, just beside the sacred samadhis of great, great saints who were the original followers of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Why was he there? In 1922, in Calcutta, he first met his guru, Srila Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur. And he received an instruction at their first meeting. Srila Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur felt such compassion for all beings. People are chasing after so many temporary material things with the false promise of maya that they will be happy. But what they are truly seeking is jagruti, the awakening of their souls. The awakening of the eternal blissful nature of the atma. And to realize the true nature of the soul. Mamaivam so jiva loke jiva buddha sanatana. We are all a part of God. Krishna says in Gita, all living beings are part of me. We are all the aham bija pradapita. Krishna tells that I am the father and the mother of all living beings. Whatever sex, religion, whatever race or color, whatever nationality, whatever species, whether we're humans or cows or elephants or dogs, the living force, the Atma, is a part of Krishna, a child of Krishna. And true Dharma is to offer true respect and to realize our inherent love for everyone in their essence. In a cultured society, 
people use things and love people. But in today's world, it's so common that people love things and they use people to get them and keep them. That is a misguided humanity. When we understand that the true wealth of life is to love and to serve, whether we're millionaires or billionaires, or middle class or simple farmers, whether we're politicians or engineers or in mining or business, or teachers, whether we're Brahmins, Kshatriyas, or Vaishyas, whatever our situation may be, atapum vijastreshtas varna shrama vibhaga shashvanushta dasya dharmasya samsadirhaditosha. The true success of our life is when we please Krishna through the sincerity of our efforts, through the love of our hearts. Srila Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasati Thakur told Srila Prabhupada that you should take this message of true Sanatan Dharma, Krishna consciousness, to the whole world in the English language. That was in 1922. After retiring from all of his responsibilities, he went to Vrindavan for many years in that holy place, praying and chanting and translating and writing commentaries on the Srimad Bhagavatam, the crest jewel of Vedas. And in 1965, he came to Bombay and begged one lady, Sumati Moraji, who was a very devout um, follower of the Pushti Marg of Sripad Balabacharya. She owned a cargo ship company. He begged her for a free ticket. He had no money. She said, Swamiji, if you go to America, you will die. You're almost 70 years old. You have nothing. You know no one. It's very cold there. He said, this is Krishna's will. Give me a chance. She gave him that ticket. After days and days of him begging, In August of 1965, he boarded the Jaladuta. Not far from Goa, in Cochin, the ship went around the southern part of India, came to Cochin, and there on the ship, he celebrated John Mastami by cooking some kichoris and some things for the sailors. <laughs> And by giving a talk about Krishna to just a few of the people on the ship, 
His 70, 70th birthday was the next day. The ship went out to sea, the Arabian Sea, what so many thousands and thousands of people from all over the world come to Goa to see. There were storms, there was rain, there was high winds and high waves. He was seasick and he had two major heart attacks and there was no medical help. 70 years old, heart attacks in the middle of the ocean. But he had a dream. He wrote about it later. In the dream, he saw Krishna and all the other incarnations. And they were pulling the Jaladuta boat to safety. And after 38 days at sea, he arrived in America, first in Boston. And he wrote a beautiful poem, Markine Bhagavad Dharma. He didn't know a single person in America. He had 40 rupees and nobody wanted rupees in those days so he had nothing but he had compassion compassion for everyone compassion he was willing to give his life for people he never met because he could see a child of Krishna in every heart Shortly after he went through customs and immigration, somebody asked him, why have you come to our country? We have our own religions. Prabhupada didn't have any money, didn't have any connections in America, but he spoke from his heart. He said, I have come to remind you what you have forgotten. How to love God. How to feel God's love. How to be an instrument of that love in everything you do. How to truly be happy and truly make others happy. And he taught there's a simple way of awakening that love. In this age of Kali, there's an ocean of faults, but there's one special blessing that simply chanting the names of Krishna, one can attain the supreme perfection of liberation. There are many names of God, but in the line of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, 
Srila Prabhupada gave us the Maha Mantra. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. So I heard all these stories in Vrindavan. And when I sat with Srila Prabhupada, his compassion overwhelmed me so much. I had met so many great saints and enlightened beings. But in Srila Prabhupada, I felt, I just want to give my life to share with people what he is giving. And I found the very heart of my own home in Seva, in Bhakti, in trying to be an instrument of Krishna's love. And when I finally returned to America, because my visa ultimately expired, I visited my mother and father, and it was such a culture shock for them even more than me. Because a couple years before I left as a college student, teenage boy, who was going for a summer vacation to Europe, and I would promise to be back for school. And years later, I returned as a seasoned sadhu. I had long matted hair. I was wearing robes like this, but they were kind of river-stained white color. My only luggage was a begging pot (laughs) and a little bag with some books, scriptures. They looked at me. Who is this boy? And I went into their house, and I, I hadn't seen chairs or couches for years. I was living with sadhus. So I sat on the floor, and I was a vegetarian. And I slept outside on some cement, which was a little because they had a fifth-story apartment, and there was a little cement um, terrace. And I slept on that. And every morning at 3.30, they would hear a bell as I was offering arti. <laughs> they were culture shocked. And I was culture shocked to be in that environment. And I remember one morning as the sun was rising, I could see a little bay that led to the ocean in Florida. And I was missing Vrindavan so much. And then I had a beautiful experience. As I was chanting the names of the Lord, I could understand that when I'm remembering Krishna with love, when I'm trying to serve with love, that is Vrindavan. Vrindavan is a place, but it's also a state of consciousness. And I could feel all the blessings and all the sweetness and all the blessings on that little porch, all alone in Florida, as I did in Vrindavan. And I realized 
that our home is within our own hearts where the eternal soul meets with God, Bhagavan, Sri Krishna. And all of us, in our own ways, are on our journey home. Thank you very much.